0: This presentation is from Design Research 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. I know. Our next talk is a face that some of you will know well, but Stephen Cox from Westpac. Um, yes, that's him. Hi. He'll uh, be talking about their journey with, through and beyond Personas. Please join me in welcoming Stephen to the stage. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for coming along. I'll give you a couple of seconds just to find your seats. That would be awesome. Um, today, I'm going to talk to you about a journey that the uh, experience design research and insights team within Westpac Digital has been experiences. And if anyone knows Westpac, they'll probably know that we have five or six different design teams. Um, uh, and this is the experience that we've had through the process of trying to create some data-driven personas. And there's a lot of promise in the name of this talk. So I wanted to unpack it for you so you know that we're actually, what we're actually going to be talking about today. We're going to start with the good, and the good is really about how the team has managed to connect the business to our customers without having to send them overseas um, <laughs> and, and having 20 designers. Um, Although that would be really nice. Um, The bad is really about how I, as an individual, stuffed up the research methodology, um, and that cost us a lot of time and money. So a few learning moments in this, and I guess the empathy, which is all about how we have managed to come up with a solution that really gets people to think about individuals as opposed to sort of aggregates. Now, I want to start at the beginning because Jared Hogan, who's going to be talking to you about stories this afternoon, has always told me, to begin a story, you need to start at the beginning. Uh, And I want to just tell you a little bit about our team. There's four of us. We serve as 52 different designers within the Westpac digital team. Um, The larger digital team is probably about 1,000 people. So we kind of work hard. um, and We work both in the generative and evaluative (laughs) space, so both of those double diamonds. Just one of the double diamonds, if that makes (laughs) sense. And the generative research we do is probably typical to what everyone else does. We do lots of contextual inquiry, co-design, surveys, various things like that. But we also do the evaluative design. So that's usability testing, uh, more surveying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And the cool thing about the generative research is it gets tipped into this strategic design team. And those guys go away and build, I guess, uh, business cases out of the customer information that we've provided them. And so eventually that trickles its way through the process and comes out of the other end and we get to see it in the usability space. So we get to see this end-to-end vision of what happens to our research and that's kind of, I think, unique in a lot of organisations. Um, the thing that I think that makes us really special is we all, all the people in the research team at least, ascribe to this, and this is our mission statement, really, to bring the business closer to our customers. And when we're talking about the business, it's similar to what Heinrich was saying is, It's really everyone because everyone in your business actually touches on the customer. Every decision they make is a decision they're making for the customer. That's product owners, coders, researchers, um, you know, all of the different folk who bring these products together. And what we want to do is get those people to really connect with people as individuals, not necessarily as their measures or their numbers. Sorry. so, we want to really drive this idea that customers are unique and that they're really, really important to the way we do business. Because what we think is that if we can get people to connect at an emotional level with our customers, then they'll actually start designing for humans as opposed to trying to hit their numbers. Now, you'd think this sort of mission statement would be really easy in an organization who has this. As, uh, as their service promise, essentially to be, this is Westpac's service promise, to be one of the world's greatest service companies, helping our customers, communities, people prosper and grow. And it kind of is, people buy into the idea of doing research that we need to talk to our customers, but they don't necessarily buy into the fact that we have to relate to them at a human level. And the reason why that is, I guess there are many different paths to success and everyone has a different measure. Everyone in the organization knows what success means for them, and it doesn't always connect back to that end customer goal, but that's what we're trying to achieve here, right? One thing I have learned, and I've been at Westpac for nine years now, it took me a little while to learn, but uh, as a bank, we believe in numbers, unsurprisingly. Um, I am a little bit slow sometimes, Um, but the way we characterize numbers, and I'm going to generalize here, so please don't shoot me. Uh, the way we characterise numbers in the bank is that numbers are truth. Um, and if we can take a little epistemological uh, theory turn here, and what we see is the bank is actually the way of seeing the world is a positivistic view of the world, right? That truth exists external to people, and that we can find that truth. And if we put enough numbers around it, we can actually model what behaviour is going to be which means that we have to have large samples of data. We need to know everything that everyone is doing to really prove out what the world looks like. It's kind of interesting to me because I sit kind of on the other end of this spectrum, right? I sit in the world of, as an interpretivist, that truth is actually constructed through social dialogue, that truth doesn't really exist outside the heads of the people who are sort of inventing it, Um and people get really annoyed at me because they say, well, whatever, because that's true. Everything's true, as long as you believe it, right? Um, but my fundamental thing is that truth comes from understanding other people and being able to connect to them at that level. And it's kind of weird that I live in this organisation that is characterised mostly as a positivistic organisation. But I think it's a really it's a happy story for me because, because I believe this, that I can construct truth. Um, We can do things like this. We can step back and think about what is our problem here? How can we construct a compelling number-based view of the customer that is really empathetic? How do we connect people through the numbers to individuals? It's kind of an exciting challenge, isn't it? Um, Previously, we've used these guys. I like to call these our old personas because they actually predate me at the bank. So they're kind of old. Uh, about 11 years old now, I think, um, and these guys were invented off the back of a large transformation program that we had, and over the years, we've added more and more detail to them, so we've got digital preferences, because 11 years ago, mobile wasn't really that important, it's kind of important in banking now, um, uh, you know, we've added little things about how how this person's different to you, um, and we've tried to make them more and more enticing to use, however, what we've found is over the years, they've started to fall out of favor. Um, we get less requests for Chris or Erica. Um, and that's kind of problematic. I think one of the interesting things is the qu- requests that we've been getting also changed. So they were based on lots and lots of task models and all sorts of amazing research. And people started using them, using look just looking at their behaviors and going, I really need to find someone who's anal retentive about their finances. I'll use Chris. But over the past few years, people are coming to us and saying, oh, hey, I need a middle-aged white guy. Um, Can you chuck me Chris? Or I need a young hip person. Can you throw me Erica? And so they're moving away from the actual intent, which is about how people thought about the world and behaved, and more into that segmentation and demographic model. That's kind of cool. But even in the last two years, we've found that people have just stopped asking for them. And that can be problematic because as soon as people stop asking for someone else to design for they're probably designing for themselves so this leaves us with this question what replaces these wonderful personas these old guys but still connects the business to the customer we know that it's a positivistic organization we know that numbers are important we know that these things are the things that we need to think about so as a team, we sat down and we go, "Okay, how are we going to solve this problem?" Uh, we started up a little side project, data link personas, um, and side projects are great in a large organization. you don't, don't get actually get to work on them very often um, and they tend to get pushed down as work comes in. So this was a side project, and it burbled along for a couple of years, maybe not a couple of years, a month or two. Um, but we <laughs> it feels like a, it feels like a lot longer. Um, but we sat down and we, you know, we started brainstorming, thinking, well, what are we actually trying to do here? And we were thinking it would be really good if we could imagine a world in which we had these personas that we could link back to data, that the designers could see what, what was the impact of their work in real time. Because you know we're a bank, we've got lots of information, we can watch stuff happen. If they could see the impact they had on specific segments, if the business could understand why design was important, but also why these personas were important. So that was a really big dream. And as was mentioned, I think, earlier, or maybe I was chatting to someone, but at the end of the financial year, which is uh, September for us, we've managed to secure some funding that was left over that no one had spent. (laughs) Uh, And so we had a big dream. We had this big dream, right? We're going to create these awesome personas. Um, And this is really where the journey of discovery starts. The exciting thing about this is that we had legs, we had to commit to spending this money and spending some time. Uh, so it was no longer a side project that we could just go, oh yeah, that's happening. Um, it was something we had to do. So, what did we do? We spent a month wandering around the business, uh, talking to all of our different stakeholders and saying to them, what do you actually think are the attributes that make people bank differently? So, we ran workshops with salespeople, we ran workshops with product owners, we ran workshops with solutions architects, and we got them all to write out these are all the different attributes we think actually make a difference to the way people do their online banking. Uh, so do they have lots of credit? Do they have lots of money? Do they know how to spend their money? Do they know how, or how many products do they have? All of those different things were things that people thought were important. So we came up with list 120. Uh, dyads, which is quite a lot really if you think about it, 120 different things that might actually change the way people do their online banking. Uh, So we had a bit of time, we had a bit of money, we didn't actually have necessarily the brain space so we hired that in, we hired Yuan, I I thought I saw someone from Yuan in here earlier, um, uh, to do this attitudinal based survey for us. So here's all the attributes we think are important. What attitudes and attributes make people think differently, is the question we ask them. And it's a wonderfully simple question. Um, and when I look at that question, I think to myself, wow, it's, it's lovely and simple. And if we get an answer to that, that's really cool, right? Um, has anyone read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, there's a moment in that where the mice who have been experiment, experimenting using this supercomputer called Earth have asked this question, what is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? And the answer was 42. Great. Well, this is one of my 42 moments, I think. The guys came back, and they did really, really good work. Right? They ran this attitudinal survey. They churned it through all sorts of different data analysis. um, Really good brains on it. And they came back and said, hey, we found a solution. I'm like, yes. sorry. (laughs) Um, And they said, these three attributes, these three different parts of a person, actually represent 75% of the variation in your population I'm like, oh, that's awesome. So how much people got help when they were looking for financial service products? How much budgeting do they do? And how confident they felt understanding those financial products? Genius, I'm almost there, right? We've got these attributes and the guys did a little bit more extra work and they said, this is how they cluster out. We've got six personas here there's people like the disengaged avoiders who do nothing they don't budget they don't talk to people and they know nothing about financial services we've got advice seeking budgeters over here who um, do budget don't know anything about um, financial services but will seek advice when they need them I'm like oh this is awesome the great thing is that we actually ran the survey through our internal marketing panel and you know what that means it means we can connect those people back into their actual behavioral data. (laughs) Two months in, and I am a winner. This is a 45-minute talk, so you know that I'm not actually a winner at this particular (laughs) point in time. Uh, And this, I guess, is where the bad starts to happen. Um, We noticed a little bit of discrepancy between some of the self-reported data and the customer's actual data. So we had to cut those guys out, because we thought they were faking their surveys. That's, that's cool, right? Like That happens all the time. But then when we looked at those archetypes and we pushed them back through our data, we couldn't really find a sensible match. There was no common pattern. Everyone had different numbers of products. They used online banking versus mobile. There was nothing that really... None of those variables actually stuck. Right, so... Um, I'm getting a little bit tense right now because just thinking through this problem, so we, you know, we had this thing. We tried going from the archetypes into the data to find these beautiful linked things that we were going to send out to the world and everyone would be able to use, but it didn't work out though, so we thought we'd come at it from a different direction. We have a, a guy who sits in a, an adjunct team of ours, um, called Data Dave, or Disco if people like to call him that, um, and he's really good with numbers as well. So I said to Disco, I said, Disco, go and find groups of people that behave the same way in our data. And so he said, okay, cool, that sounds like a cool challenge. I'll run it through multiple models using R and come up with these amazing spreadsheets. So he came back to us and said, hey, here are some models of how people behave when they use our online services. There are six different groups. I was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) This is so going to work. So... The night before he went on two weeks holiday, Dave comes to me and he just drops by my desk and says Oh, Stephen, you know that work we were doing? Ah, uh, there's no correlation and he ran out the door. <laughs> Sweet. So what did that mean for us? I mean, we did all this amazing work. The guys at U1 did really, it was really robust, really great methodology, uh, it made sense, but we really had to put this two-month dream to rest, unfortunately. But where have we gone wrong? And I guess uh, this is one of those situations that you never want to find yourself in as, as a researcher. I had this expectation, right, that the way people behaved was really closely linked to their attitudes and how they felt about banking. It seems sensible, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Everyone can believe in that, right? I can make the truth happen. Um but that wasn't the case. What I'd gone into this research with is an asymmetrical research hypothesis. Um, you tend to want to go into research with a symmetrical research hypothesis, which means that if you say something and you get a positive result, you'll learn something. If you get a negative result, you'll learn something. In this case, I didn't get a positive result, so I learned nothing. So this is what the actual wonderful Venn diagram looks like. right? And it's it's problematic. So that was a really what the fuck moment for me, right? (laughs) I was just not in the good place. So it was back to the drawing board. What are we going to do? So, you know, being an interpretivist, knowing that we can understand the truth by talking to more people, I forced the team to go out and do more interviews. I said, right, this is not the case. There is a connection between behaviours and attitudes, and we will find it. Um, uh, Yes they said as they stomped out the door being grumpy, but we looked at the different um, segmentations. We looked at uh, the way people behaved online, so we looked at those groups, and then we also looked at their attitudinal segments, and we tried to find some sort of common pattern. But our interviews made it clear that there really isn't a strong link between our customers' attitudes and beliefs and how they use their online banking services. I probably should have known that from the data. And Michelle, our quant researcher, is just smiling at me, just going, you're an idiot. (laughs) But whatever. I should have known that, right? I should have trusted the numbers. I work for a bank. The truth is in the numbers. Um, But I, I proved it to myself by making people go out and do these interviews. Now, the question is why? Why is there no link between the way people feel about their banking and the way they actually do their banking? Well, it's kind of sad, but in most cases, online banking is a really high functional low emotional engagement product. (sighs) I mean, people use their digital banking to get their banking done. You know, I think about that. It's nine years well spent, really. (laughs) Um, But no one really boasts that they bank with Westpac unless they work for Westpac. No one really says, hey, I got this really cool Westpac Life account which has compartments in it. And you can put your savings away in those compartments. Well, I don't know. I haven't met anyone that does. Um, So banking is really to do banking. Online banking, the stuff that we do every day, we haven't come up yet, I think, with a solution that actually helps speak to some of those more emotional needs. And maybe that's a function of the way we've been thinking about banking. But here's a pickle I'm in. I've taken some money. My boss is in the audience. Um... And we can't see the impact of what people need in the way they use their online banking. But like my dad always said to me, promises are promises, and you need to keep your promises. So I was at this point, where am I going to pivot to? I've already wasted a stack of money and a stack of time. So I'm sitting at my desk, lamenting the fact over a coffee, maybe laced with a bit of whiskey, and Anna Dixon from our team, who's probably one of the most brightest people I know, came in and said, oh, I've just been to this content workshop, uh, a content meetup, um, and the ABC guys were talking about this outcome-driven innovation stuff, um, jobs to be done, it's really, really cool. You should have a look at it. And I'm like, okay, I'll try anything. Um, but I also thought, oh, actually, we, we used some of this stuff a couple of months ago to really look at some feature prioritization It worked quite well. Um, we've since moved on to using a different technique, thanks to Michelle. Um, but uh, it, it kind of worked; it engaged us in a different way because it really related to numbers. Now, if you guys, if you know about outcome-driven innovation, can you just tweet to my wife? Oh, this is my uh, this is my Twitter handle. But just tweet to my wife that I'm okay and I haven't fallen off the stage yet, um, and that the presentation's going well because she's sitting it in Sydney, just going through the Twitter screen. Um, If you don't know anything about outcome-driven innovation, listen up. Um, This is going to be a really, really quick overview. You can really sum ODI up through this one quote. No one really wants to buy buy a quarter-inch, I don't know what that is, but a quarter-inch drill bit. People are actually buying the quarter-inch hole. That's Theodore Levitt's take on what this really is. People are buying things, using your service to get an outcome. They're not actually buying the service. Does that make sense? Um, so I'm just going to go into this in a little bit more detail. Outcome-driven innovation, it's a framework. Uh, underneath that framework, there's a bunch of jobs. And these are the things that people hire your business to do for them. Under those, the jobs can be broken into functional jobs, which are some kind of tasks, personal jobs that change your emotions, and social jobs, which affect the way people see you in the world. And the really important stuff is this level here, the outcomes. What this job is supposed to be doing for them. Um, And there's always a bunch of constraints in the banking world. We've got regulatory and compliance. Everyone else has other constraints, right? Now, I'm going to try and make this a little bit real. Uh, The job to be done here might be to have clean teeth. Functionally, I want to clean things out of the gaps in my teeth. And the outcome for that will be I want to minimise the chance that I'll get tooth decay. And... In the theory of outcome-driven innovation, you might have 50 to 150 of these different outcomes for each of these different jobs. From a personal perspective, I want to keep up my appearance. I want to increase the amount of happiness I have with the way I look. And from a social perspective, I want to be able to talk to people without them running away because I've got broccoli in my teeth or something. So I could measure that by looking at the increase in the number of people who speak to me on a daily basis. Now, if you look at these, the really interesting thing is, and and this model was created by marketers, so obviously it's going to have some level of measurement in it, which is awesome. Um, These things are ultimately measurable. You can tell whether someone is going to have more or less tooth decay. You can tell whether I'm happier or sadder. You might have to run a survey, but these things actually connect back to numbers. And the cool thing is, I figured out a way you can quantify those numbers, right? What is the most useful outcome that we need to focus on? Well, you can ask people this quest set of questions. If the outcome they want is to minimise the chance they'll get tooth decay, how important is this outcome to you? Is it very important or not important at all? And then, for instance, if you're talking about toothbrushes, toothbrushes how satisfied are you with the current situation? I'm pretty satisfied with a toothbrush, but other people might not be. The great thing about that is you can put it into an awesome formula and get a score. That equals opportunity, or even better, you can put in a graph that people can understand, right? So it's really important and really satisfied, probably don't need to do any more work on it. But if it's really important and no one's satisfied, then that's an area for innovation, right? Outcome driven innovation stuff in here, yeah, cool, you're probably doing the right thing. Stuff up here, you've probably spent way too much money on, don't do it again. And this gets us closer to this idea of linking numbers and customer needs, which I think is the whole point of this exercise. I kind of got lost along the way in this story. Um, but in outcome-driven innovation, we have a really good way of looking at our customers' needs and then being able to quantify them. But what does that actually mean for this idea of data-driven personas? How does it apply? It meant that we had to sit down and do a little bit more work. So thankfully, I've got an awesome team. Um, we needed to look at our existing research and conduct more interviews, yay! <laughs> Whatever. Um, I get excited by them. Um, to really try and understand what jobs are inherent in online banking. What are people actually trying to do? So we had a ton of research, and we've been doing tons of research, so we could look at all that information. We could tip it all into a tool like this. Uh, this is in vivo, if anyone's seen it before. It's a tool that nerds who like um, ethnographic research kind of use. There's probably better ones out there. But essentially what we did was we tipped a whole bunch of different transcripts into here. And then we went through them and said, oh, look, someone here is talking about a particular job. Let's tag that up. And we went through another transcript. And we went through every single sentence and every single paragraph of a stack of transcripts. And we came back with an initial set of jobs and sub-jobs, things that we had found in these stories that people had been telling us. And we spent some time trying to rationalize those, make them smaller. There was lots and lots of different jobs. They were using all sorts of different words. Um, Shello sent them out to our customers, and they said, no, you just have no idea what that job actually means. This is actually what it should be. Um, So it was nice. It was nice. We got this thing. And now we can tag everything. And we have a living database that links stories to jobs. So, I can't show you the jobs, Um, but there are five, which is good. Five really high-level ones at that big red level. Um, And underneath, we found about 44. I think there's probably a few more that we haven't uncovered yet, but there are about 44 sub-jobs, things like functional jobs or emotional jobs or social jobs, things that actually people want us to do for them. Now, we haven't gone into the outcomes. There are some outcomes that we've discovered, but we have to probably run some more interviews get those outcomes um but there was a revelatory moment for me when i was walking into my um i don't know whether anyone's seen this song but i was walking into my lounge room and my daughter was there and she had an apple and a pen and she was singing this song going apple pen pineapple pen pen pineapple pen and she was singing it in mandarin as well as english now, epiphanies always come in weird ways for me. I don't know about you, but I sat there and I thought, oh, wait, we have these core jobs, these things, and stories, and they're interlinked. Oh, man, we've come up with these core stories. I've solved my life. The great thing was, was we quantified them as well. So we've taken those jobs to be done, and once again, through the power of the magic panel, we pushed them... To those people, And we got them to rank them. We got to them to tell us what's important. And what are they satisfied with. And that's all linked to our customer information. Oh, yes. So now we have these numbers. We have behaviours. We have an understanding of these people that are, you know, at data level. Someone can come to us and say, hey, what are 25-year-olds like? And I can go, boop, boop. Well, maybe I won't make those noises. Um, right, <laughs> maybe I will, um, and we can say, "Here's the list of jobs that are really important to those guys, and here's the list of jobs that are really important, but we aren't doing very well." And then go, "Oh, thank you, Stephen. That's awesome. I'll go off and fix these problems for those people." But better than that, we've kind of got this link to these customer stories, and we can go from a customer story all the way through these number, through the jobs all the way through to these numbers. So what we've done is actually broken the shackles of a generic persona. There is no default persona. We don't need to have a grumpy anal retentive Chris anymore. We don't have to have the young, cool, flippant with her money Erica. We have real stories about real people. And jobs, and this is the important thing, I think this is the point I really want to make, that the jobs can be common across these people, but it allows our people to be different. And that was the moment, that was the apple pen pineapple thing. That's, that's what really hit me when I thought about that. And so what does that look like for our team? Essentially we built a website, we're in digital, right? So cool, we built a website, you can go in, you can learn about the different jobs, um, but you can also navigate to people. You can navigate to their stories, you can understand a little bit about them, but you can always also see direct transcripts of the quotes that come from their interviews that talk about the jobs that they need done. And if you're really excited, you can go from there and go, well, tell me other people who have this job. And you can go back into the job and say, oh, look, there's 15 people that actually have this problem. And if I'm really interested, and excited, I can go into the transcripts and I can read about the context of their lives in more depth and more detail. And you can see what this is kind of building up to, can't you? But the cool thing is that we can now add new stories whenever we want. We go out and do an interview, we can go and get that transcript and we can tag it up with all the jobs that we know about people. We can look for new jobs. If you find a new job, we'll have to run another survey just to find out where it fits within the ranking of all the other jobs. But we can also start to flesh out those sub-jobs a little bit more. We can look at those outcomes that are actually required to make that job a good thing or a bad thing. And I put this little bit at the bottom because there are endless possibilities for a research team in this world. We get to do tons of research, we get to do quant, we get to do qual, we get to do all sorts of stuff, as long as we can sell this idea, right? But I think the interesting thing for me, it kind of frees us from this tyranny of this idea of one persona for one task for one project. We've kind of flipped the model. We no longer have to go out and do 50 interviews to figure out what are the common attributes of the three people that we're going to pretend that are real to our designers. We don't have to do that anymore because our stories can be as diverse as our customers'. And the cool thing about that is that we can be more inclusive. So we've gone out now and done interviews with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, people who have English as a second language, people with disabilities. All sorts of different real-life stories have been incorporated into this database. And I know that sounds kind of extractive, but what we're really trying to do here is connect people at a visceral level the real lives of our real customers. And our customers can speak how they want to speak. We have a real human connection, all the way from the data down to those stories. And so when someone comes to us and says, hey, we need to change the way we do transaction checking, can you tell us how to make that better for people? We can say, well, pff, sure. You just need to do these things because we've got a big thing, of backlog of need to fix all these things to make transaction checking better but we can also do this we can say I want you to read these two stories Escalante Dale not not her real name or gender Um, and Escalante when we went to visit them uh, (laughs) sorry (laughs) we randomized a lot of stuff when we when we were playing back stories Um, when we went to visit them uh, is one of the most organized people I know Uh, moves money from one account to another Every day. So she he um, doesn't have to um, pay fees but also optimizes the amount of interest they have. And then Tonya Collywood, on the other hand, has struggled with addiction all of her life, and one of those addictions is spending. And they both have the same problem. They both need to know how much money they have, but they have really different intents. And that's the important thing here. If we can get people reading these stories and connecting to the difficulties and the context in which they're trying to solve these problems for people. We're going to get more human design. We're going to get more people connected to the real people behind the numbers. And I guess that's where I want to start to wrap it up, and I know this is supposed to be a 45-minute talk, so I've obviously missed something along the way, but what we've done is we've created this database of real needs, that are quantifiable with real stories that are connected at a human level that also have real diversity in them. And we can talk to the business, our positivistic business, through the numbers. We can say, these are the problems you need to solve for these people, and here's a whole bunch of people that have those problems. They're not demographically necessarily what you're looking for, but if you solve this problem for this person and this person, then you'll be well on the way to actually creating something that's real for people. So it's been a long journey a year and a half and I did stuff it up along the way. What have I learned? I guess the first thing for me is really to understand your worldview and how to use it. Um, I mean, how you can work with others to uh, change their perception of what's real and what's wrong. Um, And maybe that's just me being an interpretivist that I believe that I can construct the truth. But I do believe that if you can align your thinking and the things that you think are really important to the way other people are thinking, that you can have a real impact in an organisation. Second thing is uh, something that I don't really want to dwell on. Uh, Never do any research with an asymmetrical research hypothesis. Just don't do it. It'll waste time. It'll waste money. Your boss will think you're an idiot. Um, All those things. And lastly, and this is just because of my worldview, I think, I want you to try and connect the reality of your customers with the numbers that they represent. Because it's a really important thing, particularly if you're in a large organization that really believes in numbers. What are you going to do to break down the barrier between the number and the person and the number and the feelings those people have about the stuff that they're doing every day with you? Um, And if you can spread those stories far and wide, then you're going to get a massive change in the organisation. People will start caring about real humans. Um, And, you know, there are obviously other ways of doing it. Heinrich, wherever you are... Um, But this is one way that's worked for us. Now, there's a bit of a postscript here, something for you guys to ponder. Um, Dave just recently went on holidays again. And just as he was about to walk out the door, he comes to me and goes, hey, Stephen, you know how we did that survey with 2,000 people? And we asked them about what jobs were important to them? Uh, Well, I've been messing around with some models, you know? um, And I found some mathematically real clusters. We can find these are the real preferences. These are yet another data point that we could turn into data link personas. I, I looked at him and I thought to myself, wow, I could actually finish what I started and have a set of data link personas that were aggregates of people and the way they thought about the world. And we could look at them in the data and we could <laughs> see how they move. That's where we started. But I'm not sure whether that's actually what I want to achieve. I think We've kind of got to a point where we've got this level of humanness in the data now. So I'm going to leave you with this question. You can come and chat to me or maybe some ask some questions because we're a little bit early. Um, would you do that? Would you actually take that data and turn it into a persona now? And that's it. Thank you. Uh, Before he spoke, Steve said, um, I will either finish a little bit early or run over time. So, he was early. Uh, Which means we have time for questions. questions. This is my daughter, by the way. Anyone? She's been in all Um, presentations. Does anyone have a question for Stephen? At the back. Peter, hang on. Hello there. Hi. Just wondering, with the database... How much investment in time does it take to maintain? It doesn't take that much to maintain it once you've got it up and running. It takes a lot of time to actually get it up and running. I think you know the process of going through and looking for jobs took uh, took us a, at least a month and a half just to code them and try and squish them down and figure out what we we're actually trying to say and then grouping them back up. And then it wasn't a nice simple process. We didn't start with five jobs. We started with about one hundred and sixty. Then we lump them up and we try to make them fit to each other and then we went, okay, here are five big themes. Um, and one of the themes is not necessarily a customer theme. It's just something the business will always ask us for, so we put that in, which is what do people need when they're getting a product, but whatever. Um, no one ever talks like that when you go out and talk to a customer. And they never say, oh, I really want some help getting a new product. <laughs> That's not, oh, it's being recorded. Damn. We have time for one more question. At the back, hang on, Theo. What's changed since you've been able to build these personas? Or What's changed? Um, we're still really at the process of rolling these out. So the website's only just been launched. Um, we've We've been piloting the information with people. I think one of the biggest... And the best pieces of feedback that we've actually got was from someone who'd been reading through tons and tons of marketing data about a particular project. Um, and she said, do you have anything else? So I threw a, a couple of these stories that were related to the problem I was solving. And she came back and said, this is amazing because it actually makes these numbers mean something to me. And I think um, that's the impact we we're aiming for. And that's the impact that we'll, we'll continue to push for, that people actually kind of connect at this human level to all these different people that we talk to. Uh, yeah, so we're kind of at that beginning of the rollout phase, but everyone that's touched them used them, and they're kind of excited by them. And you'll see some more examples of how we've been using those stories and jobs to be done um, when Gerard does a presentation this other. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Design Research 2018. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.